So we're going to be uh, in Genesis chapter 29 today, and uh, this is a really interesting passage. It's one I've struggled with a fair bit because it, it seems like it's kind of like a nothing's going on kind of passage, not an action story. There's not, you know, it seems like there's a lot to tell here, but I think there's quite a bit here actually as we dig into it. I recently finished a, a series of books uh, uh, written by a fellow named Rick Atkinson. It was a Pulitzer Prize winning series called The Liberation Trilogy. And it's, it's not fiction. It's, it's a true uh, historical account of World War II. And the three books uh, pick up and tell, it's told from the uh, stage of uh, the viewpoint of the Americans' involvement in the war, but really draws in all the allies and the interactions between the allies. And it's a fascinating story. The first book is called An Army at Dawn. And I learned something uh, in reading this. I shows how dumb I am in history. I thought our in- entrance into World War II in Europe started at D-Day. That's where we started. But that was, we had already been in the war for two and a half years when that happened. We entered the war in Africa. And so this army, the story, the army at dawn, the title is telling. What, what Atkinson is trying to say is that we entered into the war against the most powerful killing machine, war machine, that history had known. Hitler and his uh, Wehrmacht was considered to be invincible. The Allies were totally intimidated by him. They, the, the, the British had stood up and uh, had shown incredible courage with the attacks uh, on their island, but they were more or less alone. The rest, the rest of Europe had, had just kind of kowtowed, bowed down, and the British were getting rapidly disheartened. And then we came into the war. Well, that sounds really great, but when we came into the war, what the Army at Dawn story is about, it's about an army of allies and Americans that was uh, ill-equipped, poorly trained, using equipment from World War I with generals who were inept and inexperienced, including first and foremost Dwight Eisenhower himself. He had been mostly a desk soldier, and here he finds himself in command of all of the allied forces that are going to take on this German juggernaut. Well, uh, as you read the story of the patriarchs, that's a little bit what I feel like when I read that. I think it's, this is like redemption at dawn, you know, the patriarchs at dawn. It's a story of how God is remaking and renewing all of creation, but he's doing it with a poorly equipped, inept, fatally flawed group of uh, families and men and women uh, that we read about in the story of the patriarchs. And Jacob, first and foremost, really stands out among this group. He's our main character, and he's a pretty unlikely vessel for God's work. CJ spoke about this some last week, and I, I want to rehearse that. I listened to CJ's lesson, which was really great. Great thing to come back to after having been in Africa for a while to kind of get plugged back into some of the good things going on here. Uh, I think of Jacob if I was kind of picturing him today, if he was a movie character, I think he would play something like a hungry politician or maybe the wolf of Wall Street or some sort of backroom operator. Jacob is a guy who is very self-sufficient. He, has, uh, he, he goes for what he thinks is rightfully his, and he makes it happen. His motto, if he had one, you know, if, if, if he was living today, he might say, if I don't watch out for me, who's going to do it? Or he might say, God helps those who help themselves. That might be Jacob's motto for life. In fact, he's, he's really pretty American. That's kind of the American ideal, is that it's somebody who knows how to make things happen. They can take charge. They, can, they see an opportunity, and they jump on it, and they, they, you know, they, they bull their way through. Well, that's Jacob. Can you imagine if Jacob had been alive you know, several thousand years later, a couple of millennia later, and was there when Jesus gave his Sermon on the Mount? And if he heard Jesus say, 
Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Can you imagine Jacob's reaction to that? I don't think it would have been, oh man, that rings true. That's, that's me. I'm all over that. No, I don't think that would have been really, really made sense to him in the way that he had lived his life. And what are the fruits of his actions? Well, you look, what you see is a fractured family. You see uh, uh, sibling rivalry that is, you know, is something you could write a novel off of. He has stolen from his brother his birthright, taken his brother at his weakest moment, capitalized on his brother's own passionate approach and immature approach to life to, to grab that birthright that, he, that was already prophesied by God that it was going to be his anyway. But he seizes the day this way to take the birthright. And then he conspires with his mom to deceive his aging father who can't see very well and trick him into giving him his blessing. Not a really, really good picture of, of, a, of a man and of a family. He trusts no one. He holds no one's trust. And I could just hear Jacob, you know, now he's, he's had to flee his family. His mother tells him, you've got to get away. Esau is, is he's going to kill you. He's, he's entertaining thoughts of murder. He's consoling himself of what you've done to him by talking about murdering you. So Jacob flees, and that's where we pick him up in the story that CJ was sharing last week, and that we'll look at a little bit more today. But I can hear Jacob in his head saying something like, you just wait. I'll be back. No one can keep Jacob bar Isaac down for long. That's his, that's his way. And so this is a pioneer of our faith. This is Jacob. And he is. He is. Now, this is the man that we're going to look at in today's text. So let's do the lead up to chapter 29, where our text today is. Uh, in chapter 28, CJ spoke about this last week. Jacob is on his en route. Uh, his mom has sent him and his father both have sent him to go back to the land of his, of his mother's brother, uh, the same place that she came from, where someone came to find her to marry Isaac. She sends him, uh, fleeing for his life, and en route, he has this dream. And I won't elaborate on the dream, but it's a dream of, of assurance from God, that God says, I will be with you, and I will help you, and I will bring you back to this place, and I will take care of you, and I will bless you. You will have many descendants. It's the first time in Scripture we have any indication of God having directly communicated with Jacob, and it was words of assurance to this man, this, this snake-in-the-grass kind of a guy. And then it's this mountaintop experience that he has, and uh, C.J. talked about the euphoria that he had. He says, this is sh- the Lord is surely in this place. I was not aware of it. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the gate of heaven. Jacob was truly touched and moved by this experience. And the hope is, and you sort of leave this episode of his life thinking, maybe, maybe this, this snake in the grass is going to become something else. Maybe things are going to change for him. And then, after he has this reaction, he has this confusing response that, again, C.J. talked about. He has this, this if-then statement. If the Lord will take care of me, if he will return me back to this place, if he will bless me, then I will follow him. He will be my God. Or, as some say, maybe he's saying, because the Lord has, is, is going to protect me and, and take care of me and bring me back to this place and give me many descendants, he will be my God. Is it a statement of faith or is it a statement of doubt? And, in fact, the narrator doesn't make it really clear. And I think that's part of the point. The narrator is leaving it for us to kind of wonder, which way will Jacob go? 
How will this experience of God reaching out into his life and, and, and testifying to him of his love and concern and care for him, how will that impact him as a person? And so we come into chapter 29 with that question kind of being asked. And it starts pretty good. As we read, the, I think most of the translations say, and Jacob continued on his way, I think the one Noel read said that, uh, the Hebrew scholar Robert Alter translates the Hebrew this way. He says, and Jacob lifted up his feet and went on to the land of the Easterners. It's an interesting translation, and commentators say that that's an, a, a Hebrew idiom that is never used anywhere else in Scripture. It, it refers to, usually in Hebrew, you hear about people lifting up their eyes and it's a sign of awareness and, and that they see and recognize something. Often it's an encouraging thing. But when you say somebody lifted up their feet, it's sort of like saying, and Jacob floated on cloud nine to the land of the Easterners. The guy is in a state of euphoria from this dream that he's had. It's a very encouraging sign that he's deeply moved by what has happened. I remember uh, that's the way I felt the first time I kissed Joetta back in 1972. You know, and I've kissed her since then, you know, and it's been the same. You know, it's just kind of buoyancy you have. You know, you had that date and, you, and there's that kiss and you, you go away, wow, this is, this is amazing, you know. Maybe this is the woman. So that's what I felt like and that apparently is what Jacob felt like. Then, as the, as the narration continues on, he goes and he finds the well of his relatives. Is, how amazing is that? This is a guy, he doesn't have a compass, he doesn't have a GPS, he's wandering across the desert for 500 and some miles with nothing. He's destitute, and he happens to come upon the well of his family, his mother's brother. The scriptures don't tell us anything about that, but I've got to believe God's hand was in this. Jacob may or may not recognize it, but he comes upon this well... And he starts asking questions, and he finds out that, sure enough, this is, this is Laban's well, my uncle's well. Now, understand, it's not like today where you go see your aunts and uncles or cousins you know, every few months. It's been, Jacob's never met them, and it's been 70-plus years since Rebecca left them. So there's been no contact. I mean, this is a long ways in, in that day and age. So he comes upon here, but he finds this is his uncle's land, the very place that his mom and dad had told him he needed to go. And he inquires about how Laban is doing. And they say, oh, he's doing great. In fact, here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the herd. And so Jacob, it says Jacob looks and he sees the shepherds and he sees three flocks of sheep. The scripture notes that there's this, this stone. And the scripture makes a point, the narrator makes a point of saying this is a big, honking big stone over the well. It's covering the well. And the shepherds tell Jacob, you know, uh, Jacob, he, he sees Rachel coming, and we're not, we're not sure why, but maybe he sees an opportunity here, and he says, you know, you guys really ought to just water the sheep and get out there. It's really not time to be, you know, lazing around here in the sun. And they say, no, we can't do that. We wait until everybody comes. Then we move the stone so that we can water the sheep. Uh, a lot of commentators think that the stone was so big that they needed multiple people to move it. Or it could be that it was a tradition that had developed where the people waited until everyone was gathered and as a community thing they would together would water their sheep not certain which but one thing is clear it was a big stone Rachel comes uh, what does Jacob do he moves the stone he says that he sees her he sees the sheep he, he runs over he grabs this stone he muscles that thing 70 year old guy this guy no spring chicken but you know this guy is something he's something to a formidable figure 
So yeah, he was a mama's boy. He stayed at home as he was young. But this is a strong dude. And he moves the stone. And then he waters Rachel's sheep. Then he falls on Rachel's shoulder effectively. He weeps and he tells her who she is. And she runs and tells her dad, Jacob's uncle. And he, he comes running out. And Jacob says, Jacob told him, quote, all these things, which we will talk about in a minute. And uh, Laban says what must have been music to Jacob's ears. You are our family. You could just stay right here. Think of how that must have felt to Jacob after everything he'd been through. So this sounds really wonderful, and it is. It's a wonderful, touching story. But the narrator is really giving us lots of clues that he wants us to look beyond just the sort of sequence of events here and this, this coming home story. And the way he does that is, is because he tells the story in a way that draws a strong parallel to a previous story. You remember an earlier story about someone coming to a well and meeting someone who is going to become a wife? In Genesis chapter 24, five chapters earlier, Abraham, many, many years before, seven, eight decades before, had sent his servant to the same place, to the same family, probably to the same well, where he met Rebecca, who became Jacob's mother. And in that story, the servant comes, he meets Laban, he tells the story about Abraham and the way God has blessed Abraham, and Laban agrees, and Rebekah agrees to leave and go with him back to become Isaac's wife, to become a part of this lineage of the promise and the work of God. So what I want to do is to draw some parallels between that story and this one, because the narrator, it seems, wants us to do that, wants us to look at these and see what lessons there might be. First off, let's talk about the motivation for these two trips. We've got the trip to find Isaac's wife, Rebecca, Jacob's mom, and the trip Jacob is going to find his wife, who we will find later becomes one of them, becomes Rachel. So what's the motivation for this journey? Well, first, the first trip, the trip to find Isaac's wife, Rebecca. In Genesis chapter 24, verse 7, we read this, The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of, this is Abraham talking to his servant, the God of heaven who brought me out of my father's household and my native land and who spoke to me and promised me on oath saying, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. So the motivation for Abraham's servant to go find Rebekah who became Jacob's mother was his faith in the promises of God. He said, God has told me he's going to take care of me. He's going to bless me, and this is going to be the land. And I don't want you marrying into the Canaanite peoples because I see what's going on there. I want you to go back to my family and find a wife. Now, with Jacob and his story, chapter 29, what's going on here? Well, back previous chapter 28, verses 1 through 5, it says, Isaac called Jacob and blessed him, and he commanded him, Don't marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Padan Aram, to the house of your mother's father, Bethuel. Take a wife for yourself there from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now reside as a foreigner, the land God gave to Abraham. Well, Jacob is sent with the same notion of a promise of God's work in the life of his family. And he's urged by Isaac to go. So it seems that faith in the promises of God is the motivation behind both stories. But there was another motivation for Jacob. And it was before Isaac talked to him. So let's, let's read that. That's in chapter 27, 
verses 41 to 45. This is, again, before Isaac talked to him, Rebekah comes to Jacob, and we read this. She says, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. When Rebekah was told what her older son Esau had said, she sent for her younger son Jacob, and she said to him, your brother Esau is planning to avenge himself by killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. When your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, I'll send word for you to come back from there. Why should I lose both of you in one day? A lot of commentators say her statement about why should I lose both of you is, again, a reference to the fact that Esau wasn't the only manly guy in this family. Jacob's the guy who can move this big stone. She'd probably worried those two guys would get into it, and maybe neither one of them would come out alive. So, what we see here is that Jacob's motivation for this trip to look for a wife has, is a mixed motivation. The first trip, looking for Rebekah, Isaac's wife, was out of faith. The second trip was motivated first out of fear for self-preservation. And secondly, a reference to faith. I don't know which was prominent, but I got a feeling that the fear one was the big one. And so Jacob goes on this trip. Now, what other, what other parallels do we see? So that's one is the motivation between these two stories. The second one is about the provisions for the journey. So, of course, in one story, the servant goes. In this story, Jacob himself goes, the man looking for the wife. But in the story of, of uh, the servant looking for Isaac's wife, he goes with a caravan full of the signs of God's blessing in the life of his master Abraham. Gifts and camels and uh, spices and all kinds of things that he could go. And he could show to Laban and say, this is how the God of heaven has blessed my master. Jacob, all he goes with is the signs of his own manipulation and scheming, which is an empty hand. All he can go with is memories of a broken family and a brother who wants to kill him. He brings nothing else. Let's look at the locus of action in the two stories. Where's the focus of activity and action? Well, in the story of the search for Isaac's wife, the first story, in Genesis chapter 24, we read this about this servant when he finally arrives at this same well to try and find this wife for uh, Isaac. And it says, then he prayed in verse uh, 12 of chapter 24, Lord, God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I'm standing beside the spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a young woman, please let down your jar that I may have a drink. And she says, drink and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. And if you're familiar with the story, that's exactly what happens. She comes out, and the servant, it says that when he sees her come, he doesn't know if she's the one. He runs, hurries to the well, and he asks her this question. Say, would you uh, give me a drink of water to see what she would do? So though the servant is taking action, God is the locus of the action here. The servant has asked God to move, and then the servant acts in accordance with that. What about the story of Jacob? Well, in the story of Jacob... There's no mention of prayer. 
There's no mention of seeking after God's guidance in this meeting that he's about to have. In fact, the, like, like a machine gun staccato references, the text over and over again refers to what, what Jacob does. It says, Jacob, he saw the shepherds and the flocks. He asks about Laban. He sees Rachel and Laban's sheep, which kind of makes you wonder, what does he see when he sees Rachel? You don't know. We find out later she's a beautiful woman. So he looks at her and goes, whoa, hey. And he sees the sheep and he goes, hey, that's a lot of sheep. Don't know. He urges the shepherds to leave when he sees all that. He says, you know, you guys really ought to get out of here. Maybe he wants a little private meeting with, with Rachel. Then he goes over and he moves this huge stone, showing his prowess. He kisses Rachel, very out of uh, non-characteristic of that culture and time. And then uh, he weeps. And then he goes to Laban when Laban comes, and it says that he tells Laban all these things. It's a story about what Jacob does. It's not a story about what God does. The narrator is telling us something here. Who is the focus here? Who is, where is the dependency here? And for Jacob, the dependency is on Jacob. And then you wonder, what did he say when he told Laban all these things? You remember what the servant did when he came? He just pointed to the camels and he told a story of his prayer and how God had moved and how God had moved in the life of his master what does Jacob tell him? He's got to somehow make a case that, you know, I'm worthy of being a part of this household here, and maybe I'm worthy of having one of your daughters. What does he say? I don't know. Maybe he says, I am the one that, that uh, was foretold who would have the birthright of my father. I'm the younger one, admittedly. I was born right after my brother. We're twins, but, but I worked it out. Because I got my birthright from my brother when he was really hungry one day. He maybe tells that story a little kind of bragging. You know, I'm, I'm a, I know how to make things happen. And my father was resistant to this whole thing. But let me tell you, he gave me his blessing. He gave me his blessing because first he thought I was his older son. But now he realized. And when he came to grips with that, he gave me his blessing. We don't know what he told. But I'm sure he was trying to make a case that I'm a, I'm a good guy. I'm a guy that you ought to, you know, let me be a part of your family. And Laban does. He says, hey, you're family. You come and stay with us. Well, the irony of all of this, if you think about it, is that the servant is the one who came with all of the stuff. And he's the one who focuses on what God has done. Jacob comes with nothing, and he focuses on what he has done. I think there's a lesson there for us, really, to think about how we fit into the story of Jacob. Perhaps we're the ones that come with nothing, thinking we have something. And we want to brag about what we have done. Well, the question is, what do we make of all of this? It's a story that's left unfinished. Jacob has come and he's joined his family. We don't really know where this is going. I mean, we're familiar with the story. We know where it's going. But if you were just reading this as a story, you'd go, what's going to happen next? I don't really know what's, what this is about. There's a few lessons I'd like to suggest that we can draw from this, from this episode of Jacob's life. The first is that we are a fatally flawed people. I am a fatally flawed person. You are fatally flawed. God may have come to you. You may have been baptized. You may have heard God speak to you. You may have had a, a deeply moving religious experience. And yet, I'm going to just bank on it 
that, you know, not that long after that, you failed miserably in some way. Because I know I have done that, and I do that. So God works in our lives, and yet our flaws as human beings continue to bubble back up to the surface. We don't change instantaneously because God has entered our life. And we may feel that deeply that we're going to change, and yet in reality, the things, the sin that is there is so deeply rooted that it's going to take a good bit of work for that to work itself out of our heart and our lives. We're self-sufficient. We're motivated by fear. There's a real undercurrent of fear in this story about Jacob. He's afraid for his safety. He's afraid that he will not be accepted. He was afraid he will not get the birthright. He's afraid he will not get the blessing. He's afraid he'll not get a wife. And so what does he do? He connives and he manipulates and he spends thinking that his brilliant stuff is what's getting, getting it all done for him when in reality it's the providence of God. So that's the first thing is we're fatally flawed and we just got to come to grips with that. The second thing is that the good news is God works through fatally flawed people. And God loves fatally flawed people. So God takes a Jacob. And God is not surprised that Jacob is so deeply moved by this dream at one point and then turns around and goes to this momentous meeting, doesn't even turn to him for some guidance when he needs it most. God's not put off by that. God saw it coming. God knows who you are better than you do. When I see the sin in my own life, and I'm so deeply hurt and grieved by it, and I, I, I have a hard time accepting myself, God has no problem with that. He knew about it before I did. So God is a faithful God who works through flawed people. And the last thing is that God is a faithful and patient teacher. It's not evident yet, but he's going to work with Jacob over the next 20 years to root out some of these things in his own life and character. And he's been working on me for 63 years now, and I am confident he'll work on me until I die. And not with any disillusionment on his part. He is a faithful and patient teacher to work in our lives. So profound will be the change in Jacob after this period of time that Jacob cannot even imagine what what lies ahead for him. If he knew, he would not ask for it. As we said in our prayer in the collect this morning, give us the courage to pray for those things that we would not. God will work in Jacob's lives in, in in life in ways that will bring pain and suffering to him, but that will set him free from the man that he is that has been so destructive to himself and others. To be sure, you'll see flaws in Jacob's life to the very end, but God continues to work. The change will be so profound that he'll come out of this period of time, not only with a changed heart and a changed relationship with his brother, amazingly, he'll come out of it with a limp. The very sign of his strength, that stone that he moved, taken from him when he wrestles with a man, An angel or God who touches his hip and takes that strength away and he limps for the rest of his life as a reminder just who is the locus of action in my life. So I want to encourage you all about two things here that we can do to kind of work together with God in this change that he brings about in our life. Two disciplines that we can submit to. 
One is the discipline of prayer. Pretty obvious. It was absent for Jacob in this episode in his life. But it's one that we need to turn our attention to and to turn to God constantly, seeking his guidance. And then like the servant, to take action in confidence of God's guidance and work. And the second thing is to learn how to set our hopes on God's faithfulness. Set our hopes on God's faithfulness and care for us, not on our own ability to manage life and make it work. N.T. Wright, he says, Do you know what the most frequent command in the Bible turns out to be? What instruction, what order is given again and again by God, by the angels, by Jesus, by prophets and apostles? What do you think it is? Be good, be holy for I am holy, or negatively, don't sin, don't be immoral? No. The most frequent command in the Bible is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, if you go back and read the Sermon on the Mount, Look how many references there are, directly or indirectly, to fear and to reasons why we do not need to fear. End of chapter 6, the passage that was read this morning. Uh, do not worry about your life. Do not worry about food or clothes. God will take care of you. When you pray, don't have to use many, many words. God knows you need these things. He will take care of you. When your enemies treat you badly, treat them with love. God will take care of you. You don't need to retaliate. Fear is such a fundamental driving force in our lives. It drives us to behaviors that are destructive to us, to our families, to our marriages, to our friendships, to our workplaces. Fear is a poison that is a fruit of sin. And we need to repent from it. So we daily need to remind ourselves and to go back and claim and believe the promises of God. Let's bow together.